Psalm 119, verse 9. Gotcha. <laughs> Bet. Family, house, inn, or tent floor? Tent floor. Okay. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. Hidden your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Amen to that. Hi, Pat. How are you? Good, How was Mother's Day? <laughs> good. We missed you, but I know you had a good time with the family. Oh, boy. Okay, let me read you something about prayer here. Bear up the hands that hang down by faith and prayer. Support the tottering knees. Have you any days of fasting and prayer? Storm the throne of grace and persevere therein, and mercy will come down. John Wesley. There we go. Let's see. Before I actually open us in prayer, let me read you a couple prayer requests. Um, Paul Fredericks asked for a prayer for his wife. Surely she has arachnitis, which is a spinal cord nerve disorder, and she asked, he asked for prayer for her. And then uh, I have a person that watches online, Bible studies, sermons, everything. And uh, I, I think I can give his name. His name's Nick. And uh, he uh, has got a very serious condition. So uh, we want to keep him in prayer. And then I have really good news. Graham that we've been praying for, he was in the hospital over 50 days. And uh, he's out. And he wanted me to pass this on to you. He said, thanks to all of the brothers and sisters at the Superior Word Congregation, since I found you. Look how far you've come. Being on the very brink of death really puts everything in perspective. But glory to the Lord God for a miraculous recovery. Your sermons and prayers have sure have helped tremendously. I can't thank you enough. And they're letting me home Wednesday the 17th, which you did get home. And I hope one day I get the opportunity to thank you all in person. So that's Graham and his uh, wife Jennifer over in Scotland. And so we're very happy about that because we've been praying for him for, it seems like, forever now. Mm -hmm. And uh, so praise the Lord for that. And uh, then, uh, you know, we have other people that we do bring in from time to time. Don, who I'm not sure where he is with his last cancer treatment. but uh, And, you know, people that have problems with their family. It just goes on and on. So we'll just lift them all up in prayer. Heavenly Father. Thank you that uh, Graham is safely back home, and we pray for the other two people that I mentioned, and all of the others out there that have unnamed or even named prayers that I've forgotten to write down. You are with these people. I know you are. I know that you're with us right now, and you're tending to all of our needs. How great you are to be able to do that, individually tending to each one of us and collectively taking care of us as a body. Thank you. And Lord, we love you, we praise you, we give this uh, time to you, and we commit it to you, hoping that we will handle your word properly, and that we will carefully uh, teach and instruct it now, and then as we pass it along to others. And thank you for the opportunity to do so, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Ah, boy. Okay, let's see. We have uh, Romans 424 is where we're at today. Yes. And uh, I don't know. Let me see if we have a paragraph you can start at just for context. 16 is what Okay, go ahead. Just read 16 down to 24 then. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, 
I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead, and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope of in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, 24, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And oh man, oh, beautiful words. But for us, let me read it again. Uh, but for us, it shall be imputed imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. But for us is tied to the previous verse, which is explained in Genesis fifteen six, which we brought up 20 times now. And he believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham simply believed God's promise. That's all he did. We need to just continuously remind ourselves of this. It's, it's, it's by faith. It's by belief and nothing else. He believed God's promise, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This written account of that declaration, according to Paul, was not, as he says, was not for his sake alone. In other words, what the Bible records about Abraham serves an entirely different purpose, which is that we, too, enter into the same state of righteousness in exactly the same way. That's why he's citing Scripture. He's saying, this is what it says in Scripture. This is how it applies to you. And how will it occur? He goes on. He says, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Okay? Once again, imputation is a uh, bestowal of God's um, uh, righteousness upon a person, but it is a bestowal that means that I declare you not guilty. Impartation would be you are not guilty. In other words, um, when, when we say that we are imputed righteousness, it means that Christ's righteousness is given to us. It doesn't mean that we're righteous in and of ourselves. And anybody here that thinks that they are righteous in and of themselves probably needs to reevaluate their position. At least if, if I use myself as the benchmark and I look at all other people and say, they have to, they have to be somewhat like me. I tell you, I fall short every minute of the day in thought and word and in deed, right? And so um, I am imputed Christ's righteousness, but to be imparted his righteousness would mean that it is granted to me and I am righteous rather than I am righteous because of Christ. I am righteous in and of myself now. That is not the case with us. God imputes us Christ's righteousness. When he looks at us, he doesn't see our faults. He sees Christ's righteousness. Okay, that's what imputation is. Anyway, um, uh, let's see here. It'll occur, it, it, it will occur, it shall be imputed to us in whom, who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. We learn that our justification before God comes to us by an act of faith. Okay, that's it. Just as it did with Abraham. The record of Abraham's reckoning has been given to show us that the same thing will occur to us in the same way. God has set the pattern and the pattern will always follow through. It will always be the same. 
you are not declared righteous because of works of the law, even under the law. When Israel uh, came before God with a sacrifice to say, you know, I, I've trespassed or I've sinned and I need to do this offering, it's because they're not righteous. But it is the faith in their provision that God has given them that would save them. And ultimately, it comes about on the Day of Atonement, looking forward to Christ's Atonement. The Day of Atonement in Israel didn't save anybody. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It can never take away sin. But it looked in anticipation of what Christ would do. So they were saved through Christ, looking forward to Christ. We're saved saved by Christ, looking back on what Christ did. But it's the same salvation, okay? The rams and lambs and goats and all of the things that they sacrificed in the Old Testament were only in anticipation of what Christ was going through. And we're seeing that every single week in the Leviticus sermons. In minute detail, God is showing us again and again and again these little details, each sacrifice being a little bit different, but every one of them pointing individually to Christ for the high priest, for the congregation, for the ruler, for the people, for a major sin, for a transgression. All of these things point to the work of Christ in one way or another. And God just broke them up so that we would be able to see why this person uses a bull, why this person uses a goat, why this person uses a ram, why these different things. But every one of them ultimately points to Christ, okay? The same thing occurs to us in the same way, but it is all fulfilled in Christ. That look forward, we look back. The only difference between what occurred in Abraham and what will occur when we believe is the difference in what what is known okay Abraham was given a promise and without wavering he believed okay you will be uh, thus shall your descendants be look up at the stars there's billions of stars out there you're gonna have descendants like that and Abraham believed him we have been given the account of Jesus and we are asked to believe it that's the only difference in it it's the same process of faith faith is what saved Abraham okay our faith in what Jesus has done he just was looking forward to something else And in the end, he was ultimately looking forward to the Messiah because it says, in your seed, um, uh, it is through your seed that it shall be reckoned. That's in Galatians. And Paul makes, he stresses the fact that it says seed, not seeds. So there's one seed, one singular person that will ultimately save all people. And Abraham understood that. But that's not the promise that was given in Genesis 15. I don't want to muddy the waters there. Anyway, um, uh, where was I? Let me get back over here. And um, so uh, we have been given the account of Jesus. We're asked to believe it. And this is Jesus. This is the good news, and it is the foundation of our faith. There are two things to note about it, though. First, Paul calls Jesus Lord, okay? Calls him Lord, and secondly, he notes that he has been raised from the dead. He will call these to mind again where? He's going to say it very soon in the book of Romans. Lord and raised from the dead. What's 811? If the Spirit of Him, actually, He's just dwelling you by that same Spirit, He's going to raise you up. Okay, let me see. 811, that's probably a good one. Yes, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life to mortal bodies through His Spirit. I didn't even think of that one. Have you got one? Yeah, the next sentence. Well, the next sentence, yes, but that's still we're still in that. I'm saying Romans 10, 9 and 10, right? What does it say? It says um, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? So we've got it here in Romans chapter 4. We've got it in chapter 8, which I didn't even think of that one. Then we've got it in chapter 10. He's dwelling on the fact that Christ is Lord and that Christ was raised from the dead. Okay? So the pattern is set in the Old Testament. 
and it continues and is confirmed in the new. There's only one way to be saved, and works are necessary part of the process, right? No, they are excluded. Works are excluded of any kind. Once again, and I'm probably going to say this here uh, uh, during this uh, in my comments here, but uh, that's why, especially if you get caught up in the Hebrew Roots movement, I had somebody email me about this today asking for help for a friend that may be getting caught up in that. They believed in the grace of Christ all along, and all of a sudden, it seems like they're they're the feasts of Israel. We've got to observe the feasts of Israel, and we, you know, all these crazy things that people are introducing, which have never, never been considered ever in Christian circles since two thousand years ago. And all of a sudden, you know, we've got Israel back in the land. We've got all these people from Israel, and they speak Hebrew, and they're from the Jewish descent. And so it's appealing to say, well, that person must be an authority because they speak Hebrew and they're of Jewish descent, and blah blah blah. And these people over there. Are saying, well, you need to observe the feasts of Israel. You need to be circumcised. You need to blah, 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 blah. And it's becoming very fashionable for people to get caught up in this type of theology. Even when they believed all along that they were saved by grace, all of a sudden they believe, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. Judaizers. That's exactly what they are. Since the time of Paul, those people were completely wiped out, but they are being reintroduced now because Israel's back in the land. And you've got the same group of people that cannot let go of customs, traditions, and Old Testament things which are annulled, they are obsolete, and they are set aside in Christ. They are nailed to the cross. And I'll probably, like I say, that'll probably be in my comments somewhere today, but if they're not, I need to say it now because it is a terrible, terrible thing which is being brought on to people. And why would that happen? Anybody have any ideas why that might be coming about? Other than, you know, of course, we look to people that speak a, a special language or that, you know, have some insight that we may not. But why do you think that this type of thing is so appealing to people? Well, I can tell you what I think. I think it's because Christianity has become so boring in most churches and in other churches, it's become so unreasonable. You, you go into churches and they've got them doing things that are totally unscriptural. And if you have a... a, a teeny sense about what the Bible says, you're going to say, that is incorrect. That is absolutely incorrect. The Bible doesn't say what you're doing in this church. And so they think, well, I need somebody to listen to. I've got to have some specialist. I'm not getting it in this Methodist church where they're ordaining gays, and I'm not getting it in this uh, uh, Pentecostal church where they're doing things that have nothing to do with scripture. And so they say, well, this person speak, he speaks Hebrew. He's out of the Jewish descent. He must know what he's talking about. And it becomes very appealing because people have not been trained in proper theology, particularly in Galatians. Yes? It's also very appealing to people who don't, uh, are new to religion. Or you something. bet. And they are, you know, they're just attracted to the ritual and the dignity. Ritual, the dignity, the customs. You know, that's why a lot of people go, like we said in the Prophecy Update a couple weeks ago, Hank Hanegraaff. Great, great guy. You know, he's been doing apologetic books for Christianity for years. He has his own radio show. He's the Bible Answer Man. He knows all of the Bible. And he was missing something. And he says, well, I need to uh, I need to go to Orthodoxy. And so he converted to Greek Orthodoxy, where they've got, you know, shrines on the walls, and they've got incense swinging around, and, you know, people with long beards. And anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, there, there's people want something to cling on to. And 
Unfortunately, they'd rather cling on to anything except what this says, which says that you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. And that's it. There's nothing you can add to it. People don't want that. They want to say, I've got to do something in order to be saved, or I've got to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. And they go from this church to this church to this church, four different churches during the week, making sure that they've crossed every T and dotted every I, when all you need to do is simply trust Jesus. But coming to Christ with the faith of a child will get you further than any works will ever get you, ever. So anyway, we'll go on. Um, let's see here. The pattern is set. I've said that um, we are to have faith in the Lord Jesus. And this means that he is the divine son of God. When it says Jesus is Lord, that's the oldest creed in Christianity. Jesus is Lord, right? We're to believe. When they said that at the early church time, they weren't saying that it's like Jesus is master. They were saying it as Jesus is Lord, meaning Jehovah. He is God incarnate. He stepped out of the eternal realm. He united with human flesh. He is Lord. When they thought of the word Lord, they were thinking of Jehovah or Jehovah or however you want to say it, Yahweh, you know, capital the what? Yeah, capital L-O-R-D. He is Lord. This means that he is the divine son of God. He is fully God and fully man. And we are to have faith that God raised him from the dead. He has fulfilled the law on our behalf. Okay, and just because I know I've done this 15 different uh, uh, Bible studies, but I want to do it again. I want to do this once in a while. I don't care if I do it every week. It, it, it's something that we should not neglect is because people need to know this, one, where it is, and two, they need to be able to defend it. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, okay, this is Hebrews chapter 7, in verse 12, it says, for the priesthood, are we under the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron? No. When the priesthood is changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. When the priesthood changes, there has to be a change of the law. They are the, they are the designated people for the priesthood. We know that Jesus is our high priest. If he is our high priest and he did not descend from Aaron, meaning the tribe of Levi and the Aaronic priesthood, then there must be a change of the law. If there's a change of the law, why would you go back and do deeds of the law? Why would you do that? Why would you insert the Day of Atonement? Why would you insert the Feast of Tabernacles and make a little booth in your backyard unless you're just trying to be impressive to God? Why would you do that? And then uh, continuing on in verse 18 of Levit or Hebrews chapter 7, it says, For on the one hand, there is an annulling. Somebody tell me what the word annulling means. Pulling the plug. Pulling the plug. It is done. Annulled. It is done. There is an annulling of the former commandment, meaning the law of Moses, because it, of its weakness and unprofitableness. It was weak. It couldn't save anybody, and it was unprofitable. It couldn't get you anywhere. There was no end to the law of Moses, except a, if you were to still be under the law of Moses, you would be under a system of sacrifices forever. And every person that was under the law of Moses, with the exception of one, died, meaning that the law didn't save any of them. The man who does these things will live by them. Nobody lived by them, meaning that they could not live by them. Only Christ, who wasn't even descended from Levi, fulfilled the law, and he was born without sin, so he could do that. Hebrews chapter 8 is the next one. You've got Hebrews 7, and then in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, speaking of the new covenant of Christ, he has made the first obsolete, old. It's done. It is done. It is done. It is obsolete. When something is obsolete, you don't go out and buy it. You get rid of it right? It is done. Nobody goes out and buys an obsolete TV. 
it's done, especially a TV from 20 years ago because it won't even work anymore. They don't even have those signals. They've completely done away with them. And then we have one more, which is in Hebrews chapter 10, 7, 8, and 10. Always remember this. It says, um, first, in verse 9, then he said, behold, this is Jesus speaking, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, meaning the, the law of Moses, he takes it away that he may establish the second. You cannot establish the new law unless you take away the old law. It's done. It is gone. It is obsolete. It is nulled. It is taken away. And then he says down in uh, um, verse, uh, that's good enough. We'll just go with those three, and then I'm going to give you one more. By the hand of Paul, I always go to Hebrews, though, when I tell people to stay away from the law of Moses. Why? Because if you say Paul, then they'll say, well, Paul was manipulated by the Greeks and blah, blah, blah. And they make up all these stupid excuses like it's not a part of the Bible that we're reading. Here's what it says in verse 2.14, Colossians 2.14. Having wiped out, this is the law of Moses. Do not do this. You are to do this, right? These are all the things that it says in the law of Moses. He said, having wiped out. Law is gone wiped out, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. He admits right there that the law of Moses wasn't for us. It was against us. It didn't save anything. It only brought condemnation. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Thank you. Having wiped out the right handwriting of, of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. It wasn't just against us. It was contrary to us. It was pushing against us. It was working out death not life, he says, and he, meaning Jesus, has taken it out of the way, sounds like Hebrews to me, having taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In other words, he is the law of Moses. He embodies the law of Moses. That's what the ark pictures. The ark pictures Christ. The law is inside. The mercy seat is on top. It's all picturing Christ. The law is inside. He embodies it, and his body was nailed to the cross. When he says it's nailed to the, the cross, it means that Christ was nailed to the cross. The fulfillment of the law is done. When he came down off that cross, the law stayed nailed to the cross. Okay, it's done. It is, it is, well, actually it came off with him because it is him and then it was buried and it's gone. When he came out, there's a new covenant. We'll say it that way rather than saying, but it is nailed to the cross. It is done, okay? Don't let people push you into faulty theology. Paul warns against this so vehemently in the book of Galatians, so absolutely and precisely, that literally, I don't know how people can miss this, and yet they just, they have to say, well, Paul was wrong, or they have, sure, Holy Spirit was wrong, and we'll go through this really quickly, just because we're on the train of thought. If we take Paul out of the Bible, let's just say we take out Paul, what does that do to the Bible? It voids the New Testament. It voids the New Testament. It makes it, it incomprehensible. It, it makes it incomprehensible. It also, if you were to just take out Paul and say, okay, we're going to go with this, okay? Well, where's the problem with that? Now we have to take out another book. The book of, begins with A, ends with CTS, okay? The book of Acts, because guess what? It has Paul in there, and it was written by Luke, right? So we have to take out the book of Acts, and when we take out the book of Acts, we have to take out another book. We have to take out the Gospel of Luke, because Luke is the one that wrote the, the Gospel of Acts. So now you've taken out Paul, and now you don't have the book of Acts, and now you have to take out Luke. But when you take out Luke, there's another problem. You have to take out something else. You have to take out Matthew and Mark, because Matthew and Mark cite the same things that Luke does, right? 
They complement each other and they are there to do that for that specific purpose. So now you've taken those out. When you take out Mark, now you have to take out his tutor, who was Peter, right? And when you take out Peter, well, you're taking out Peter, who has already confirmed Paul, because he says Paul's writings are scripture. He says they are scripture. So now you've taken out Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you've taken out uh, Acts. But you've also got to take out another apostle, because he is referenced in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John. So that's gone. So now you've taken out John, okay? When you take out the Gospel of John, you also have to take out the three books of John, right? Okay, so they're gone. You've taken out all of those. Now you have to take out as well Jude. Well, Revelation as well. I was going to get to that last, but you're right. No, that's okay. That's fine. Take out Revelation because it's written by John, but we take out the book of Jude because Jude, if you follow it structurally, it parallels the book of 2 Peter almost exactly. If you ever see a breakdown of the two books, they are absolute parallels of each other. They say the same thing. It's a little shorter. It's an abbreviated form of it, but it says exactly what he says. In some cases, word for word. It's astonishing. Okay, so you've taken out all of that. You're left with the book of Hebrews, which is supported by Paul's writing. In other words, you have no New Testament. You have no New Testament at all. It is completely wiped out when you take Paul out of the picture. So when somebody says to you, well, Paul is blah, 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 tell them, if you take out Paul, you have gotten rid of the entire New Testament. And all you are left with is a book that ends on a curse. Malachi 4, the last verse of the Bible says that if you don't do these things, I will come and strike the land with happiness. No, I'll strike the land with a curse. The Bible does not end with a curse. It ends with the restoration of all things through the blood of Christ. But when Paul is dismissed, as so many arrogant people do, you lose all New Testament theology, all of it. Implicitly, one way or another, everything else falls apart. So remember that, keep that argument in your mind, review it once in a while. When somebody comes to you and attacks Paul, let them know. Well, then you have to take out Acts. You've got to take out Luke. If you take out Luke, just go through the whole system. There's nothing left. It is a unified whole. Which which just points to the intricacy of this book. Intricacy. You cannot pull a thread and not expect... The whole thing, the whole tapestry will come undone when you take out any of it. It is a unified whole, and it is so perfectly balanced. Any part of it being taken out will corrupt the rest of it, naturally, or when you add to it, okay? That's why the Lord says, do not add to my word, don't take away from it. I know that's a misquote, but it's basically the uh, the idea there. So, here we go... um, uh, we are to have faith that God raised Jesus from the dead. He has fulfilled the law on our behalf. It is fulfilled. I'm talking about the law. Nobody here should ever be intimidated into observing the law, ever, okay? Life application. What does your denomination require of you, okay? Oh, here it is right here. Do they say that you can't eat pork, okay? I know people that are in churches right now that here's what they do. We've got a couple of Messianic churches in uh, our synagogues in Sarasota, and they say, well, no, we would never tell somebody you can't eat pork because obviously Jesus fulfilled the New Testament. But what do they do? They make you feel guilty. I'm not saying all of them. I'm not saying all Messianic synagogues. I haven't been to them all. I don't know. But I know that some of them will do this. They will say, but you really shouldn't eat pork because Jesus didn't. And they go through this long list of reasons, which are totally invalid, in order to get you feeling guilty about eating pork so that they feel better about you not eating pork. Do you understand? Doesn't that cut out a good portion of Acts? It cuts out a good portion of Acts. It cuts out a good portion of uh, Paul's writings. It's, 
It's completely contrary to what the message of the Bible says. You're absolutely right. The book of Acts would be wiped out. Galatians is wiped out because Peter was eating with who when he pulled back? He was eating with the Gentiles, right? Do you think the Gentiles were saying, well, we're not eating any pork? That's what they ate their whole life. Peter was sitting there having a meal with them, and all of a sudden the Jews show up, and he pulls himself back. Maybe we'll go through that today. We'll see. Anyway, um, so do they say you can't eat pork? Do you say you must observe a Sabbath? And once again, we'll do this as I do from time to time, a Sabbath is Saturday. That's right. There's no such thing as a Sunday Sabbath. That's what we would call a category mistake. The Sabbath is Saturday. There's no such thing as a Sunday Sabbath. There can be a Sunday day at worship. There can be a Sunday, you know, go to church, whatever you want to call it. Family picnic day, doesn't matter. It is not a Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. And if somebody says you need to be worshiping on a Sabbath, tell them to hit the the road heretic because that's what they are they're they're introducing something which is fulfilled in christ okay um so it's the only commandment that's not reiterated by it's not specifically reiterated as being needed and secondly it is specifically stated as being fulfilled mm -hmm. so it goes both ways it's not repeated as a commandment in the new testament i'm talking about from the book of um uh, Acts all the way through Revelation, but not only that, it is said that it is fulfilled. It's Hebrews 4, verse 3. Now we who believe do enter that rest. It's done. We are in the rest that was promised from the beginning of the world, the Sabbath being a picture of that. That's what the Jewish people were doing every week. They were anticipating the good things in Christ. Now we who believe do enter that rest. It's done. Okay, no Sabbath. Anybody that wants you to observe a Sabbath and you want to do it because you feel good about it, Paul says there's nothing wrong with that, Romans chapter 14. But if you're doing it because you feel you are obligated to do it in order to merit God's favor, you have fallen from grace. Okay, Sabbath, done. Is there some other work they tell you that is necessary for you to prove that you're saved? I was talking to somebody yesterday on the phone, and uh, this goes along with um, uh, several charismatic colleges. They tell you that if you do not speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. That is proof. You must speak in tongues in order to. And so what you do is you roll around on the floor and you make a bunch of stupid noises. And they say, he's got the Holy Spirit. Right? It's no, totally, totally unbiblical. All right? Proving that you were saved probably means that you're not saved. All you need to do is believe, receive. He seals you with the Spirit. It is done. Okay? Beyond that, what you do for Christ will be counted as rewards and losses. That's it. But there's nothing you can do to prove that you were saved. That's between you and the Lord and nobody else. All right. If so, if any of those things that I said, it is time for you to find another place of worship. The Bible is clear, but we misunderstand. Call on Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Nothing else is required. Now go share this good news. Okay. Let's close class and everybody go out and tell somebody. Okay. Um, verse 425. Okay. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Okay. In one verse, he combines the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as if it is one act, because it is. It is one act in Paul's mind. It is one act in God's mind. He was buried. He was raised. It is one thing. It's two things that happen, but it's one concept of what you can't have one without the other, in other words. The final verse of chapter 4, well, we might as well just review chapter 4 today and, and uh, next couple weeks, and then we'll get on to chapter 5 later, okay? Now, um, final verse of chapter 4 explains the marvel of the finished work of Jesus. He was 
excuse me, I can't breathe today. He was delivered up because of our offenses. Sins committed by the fallen sons of Adam must be punished. Everybody agree with that? If you've sinned, you must be punished. That is it. If you commit a sin within the United States of America and you are not punished for it, then the law is not being upheld. There is an unjust judge, just like we have out in California, that say that we have sanctuary cities and we're not going to prosecute illegal immigrants. I don't care how many billions of people come to the United States of America if they do it legally. If that's what the government says, stamp, you're here. When they come here illegally, they're not undocumented aliens. They are illegal aliens. That's all there is to it. There is an unjust system when they do not follow the laws of the land. If they want, they can amend the laws of the land or they can uphold the law. But either way, something must be done or it is an unjust system. Okay. Same thing in God. We, he was uh, delivered up for our offenses. Sins committed by the fallen sons of man must or Adam must be punished. God cannot arbitrarily overlook sin without violating his own righteousness. We cannot overlook punishing a criminal without violating the justice system of the United States. And once that happens, the judges are blinded and wickedness rules the land. That's the way it happens. That's in the book of Job. I, I'm not going to look for it right now, but it's in the book of Job. It says basically that. Um, every sin must be punished. The punishment must be perfectly executed because he's perfect. He is God. Therefore, there are only one of two possibilities for all people. These are, this is it. Okay. One, punishment in the one who commits the sin. A finite sin committed against an infinite creator requires an infinite punishment, condemnation, and eternal separation from God. That is the only possible thing that can happen to a person if they sin against God, with the exception of this. Two, punishment in a perfect substitute. An animal cannot substitute because it is in a different category. All right, we're humans, that's an animal, it's not reasoning, we are, it cannot take away our sins. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, book of Hebrews. Another person born from man cannot substitute because that person is born in sin. All people born of a man, everybody that has a human father received that father's sin. Sin is transmitted from father to child. And if you are born of a man, you cannot take away the sin of another person because you already have your own sin. God has already condemned you, so he's, what's he going to do? So I'm going to accept him as a punishment for you when he's already condemned? He can't do it. It cannot happen, okay? So it cannot be a substitute because that person bears Adam's sins. Thus, Jesus Christ is the only, the only acceptable sacrifice apart from option one. He was born of God through a woman. He is the God-man. Option one says that it will be judged in you. Option two says that it will be judged in him. And that can't happen. And everybody here that has said, I received Jesus Christ, has had that happen. You don't need to worry about what does it say, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Anybody that tells you that you are not eternally saved, anybody that says that eternal salvation is not correct, is so flawed in their theology that I cannot imagine them even picking up this Bible and saying it's the same book that I read. I cannot imagine that. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot un-be in Christ Jesus. You are either in or you are out. And if you're in Christ, it's done. He's never going to reject one that is in him. There's no such thing as a loss of salvation. Okay? Um, 
He was delivered up for the sins of the world, and as Paul has clearly laid out in the previous verses, the justifying work of his sacrifice can only be received by faith. That's it. There's, he went very methodically through that process to show us that it is by faith and by faith alone. So much for feasts of the Lord, so much for Sabbath day observances, so much for not eating pork chops. Are we having pork tonight, Hedico? No. Okay, well, it's not because of the law of Moses, is it? No. Okay, good. All right. Then we're, then we're safe. All fish. Right. What? Fish. Better not have fish. I don't know. I, I did try to catch her some off the dock today, and I had no success because we have a strong east wind. And when there's a strong east wind, you got the bay, right? And it's very shallow. What happens in a shallow body of water when there's high winds? Big waves coming over to us, and the fish do not like that. They can't hear the predators, and so they all go to the lee side of the bay. Where And so if you want to go fishing on a day like today, go over to the mainland, and you'll catch all kinds of fish. But what is over here? You've got all the predator fish. They're waiting because if any fish decides to stick around, they're going to get them, right? And they're hungry anyway, like the snook and all of those. Those are over there, but you ain't catching those in the daytime because they can see. Does anybody know what... This has nothing to do with Bible class, but it just came to me. This is a fish, okay? And I'm not a really good drawer, all right? But we'll say this is a fish. I'm going to really blow this, okay? All right, we'll put a little smile out of it. Does anybody know what this is that's along the side of the fish? It's how they hear, isn't it? The what? That's how they hear. Well, it's, it's a sensor. This, this line, some fish you can hardly see it, but some fish it's very pronounced. That's a sensor. It's like when a net is thrown, they can actually sense that net coming in. That's why even when a fish is swimming away from you, you think, how did he see that? He didn't have to. That sensor, it's like an antenna to, to them. And so that's why it's so hard to catch fish. But anyway, I, I know it has nothing to do with anything, but you got a new squiggle for your brain. Here we go. Um, let's see here. Punishment. Uh, Jesus was delivered up for our sins. I said that there's nothing we can do. I said that this is why Ab Abraham... This is why Abraham is used as the preeminent example of this. Abraham looked forward in faith to the coming Messiah, as is noted in John 8, 56. Do you know it? I know you know it, but... Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and when he saw it, he was glad. He was glad. That's right. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and when he saw it, he was glad. John 8, 56. Okay. Is it really that hard to believe? The answer demands an affirmative. Very few people in proportion to the total number of people in the world today have grasped the truth that an itinerant preacher in a little nation of Israel 2,000 years ago when there weren't cell phones came to redeem the world. How many people believe that? Very few. And, and it, Yeah, we got some hands up here. But in relation to the rest of the world, it is very few. All right. They reject the premise and they rail against it. That's what's so hard to understand is why people literally fight against the message of Jesus. I, you post Jesus on your wall on Facebook, and all of a sudden somebody that's a friend of a friend sees it, and they come and they, they abuse you. They literally will abuse you over your faith in Jesus. And you say, why? Because I believe that God sent his son to die for my sins, and the, the attacks, they're almost debilitating at times. I, I just, I, I don't understand how people can be so mentally perverse. This isn't your wall. You're not on my friend list. Why would you even come here? beat it. And as soon as somebody does something like that, they are blocked. They are never coming to my page again. I did it to somebody today. Just well, a uh, rude person. Eight, eight chapter says, you are of your father the devil. You are of your father the devil. That's right. And you know what? When people start attacking like that, I would tell them that. You know, you belong to the devil. You may not believe that, but you are led you're by the devil. Yeah, you're judgmental. You're <laughs> judging me. Oh, and they start whining and, you know, I, 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 I wish I could. Gorgeous. What? The what? 
You're so self-righteous. You're so, so self-righteous. When I believe that somebody had to die for me, that's self-righteousness to yes. them. Can you imagine that? That's the, that is the epitome of not being self-righteous, acknowledging that I have no righteousness of my own, none. It was totally a, a, a thing of God, and it was an act of grace, and they say you're self-righteous, and you're this, and you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're the ones that are self-righteous. That's right, because they, they've, they've earned their path to heaven that they don't believe in. Yeah, well, they choose what... That's right. Yeah. You know, convenient for them. What's convenient right for them. And the funny thing is, I've, I have witnessed to people. I've talked to people that say, I don't believe in heaven. I, I'm sorry, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in this and that. And you start talking to them. And then you get halfway through the conversation, and you will say, well, you know, obviously you don't care about going to heaven. And they'll say, well, I'm going to heaven. And they just acknowledge that they don't believe in God. So how can you how can you have a heaven when there's no God? That's how confused people are in this world. They, they, they don't think anything through. It's all about them. As you noted, it has nothing to do with God's plan. Anyway, uh, they reject the premise and they rail against it. The only hope of their salvation is shunned because of an inability to perceive, perceive the marvelous workings of God. However, Paul doesn't finish with the cross, does he? He completes the gospel by stating that Jesus was raised because of our justification. God declared us not guilty through the cross of Christ. All of our sin was heaped upon him, and he bore the punishment for what we have done, but Christ carried our sins away. They were removed, as Isaiah says, as far as the east is from the west, gone. Therefore, where sin is removed, there is no longer punishment for sin, and there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. After bearing our punishment, he came back to life because it was impossible for death to hold him. Acts chapter 2. Peter stood up and he confirmed what you can think through. The wages of sin is death. He had no sin of his own. Therefore, death. he deserved no, no death. And because of that, death could not hold him. It was impossible for death to hold him. Let me read that to you just so you don't think I made that up. Acts chapter 2. Yeah, 2343. 20 weeks ago? What's that? Didn't we do that just a few weeks ago? We might. I try to repeat myself as much as possible because it is it is so hard for some people to get this through their heads. They, they, they will just email you and they'll say, yeah, but, yeah, it's, it's so simple. Um, where was that? 43, you said? 23. 23. Um, uh, no. Um, 23, 40. Yeah, four, 24. I'm going to read you 23, though. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you, speaking to the Jews, not to the Gentiles, by lawless hands have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And we do say it in the sermons as well. I probably said that in the past four sermons. It's something that I, I could say every single day of my life to somebody, and some people just don't understand it. It is not possible that he could stay in the grave. And as long as they are outside of accepting Jesus, it seems like something stupid. Well, why would God raise somebody from the dead? And why would he have to die in the first place? Because of you, because of what you've done. And until they assimilate that into themselves, it doesn't make any sense. But really, once, really love the well, Jesus had to sin. Oh yeah, why did he have to sin? Exactly. Oh, he had to ascend. Well, that's that's convenient. That's Tell me why. That's because he's just like we are. Yeah, he's just like us. Sin? Hello, <laughs> holy so. mackerel. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, came back to life. It was impossible for death to hold him. The wages of sin is death. Six twenty three, right? Yeah, or three twenty three. Three twenty three. Thank you. Um, the wages of sin is death. And um, where was I? He never sinned. Therefore, premise one, premise two, and then conclusion. the conclusion. 
he came back from the grave. He was raised, as Paul says, because of our justification. In one fell swoop, cross to grave to resurrection, God removed our sins and raised us to new life through the work of his son. This is exactly how Paul portrays the cross and the resurrection, as a single, unified whole. They together are the work of Christ on our behalf. They're two separate actions, but they are one whole. You can't have one without the other. They are one thing in Christ. Now as it is, uh, now as it is recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, the victory has been realized. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's see here. Where is it? Uh, we'll go to... Uh, verse 50. Let's go back to verse 50. This is such a good passage. We might as well read the whole thing. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Once again, I've said this a couple times during prophecy updates, and I've said this to people on, on the phone and by email. If somebody tells you that Matthew, um, what is it, 24, where uh, he says, um, nobody knows the day and the hour, and um, it, it speaks about um, uh, that speaking of the rapture of the church. I'm sorry, it wasn't. Paul writes right here, behold, I tell you a mystery. If it's a mystery, it's the first time it's ever been revealed. It had nothing to do with speaking to Israel under the law about something that was coming during the tribulation period. Nothing. It is something now revealed for the very first time. It says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You don't have a nursery here, but that's a to the nursery. The nursery. For babies. What do you say? They don't all sleep, but they all Oh, yeah. They, they don't all sleep, but they all get changed. That's very good. Never heard that one before. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. <clears throat> so when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Here it is. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is law. law. Speaking of the law of Moses. Okay, any law, any law, but specifically the law of Moses. God gave his standard. And the, how did he say it? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. By introducing the law, man was condemned even further, because nobody can meet the demands of the law. And that's why God gave them grace, even in the law, the day of atonement. Come forward, confess your sins, abase yourself, and everything will be okay for another year. All looking forward to the cross of Christ, all of it. So, there you go. Um, <clears throat> life application, yes. Life application, there is one and only one way to be reconciled to God the Father, through the work of Jesus Christ. John 14, 9, 3, oh, 6, John 14, 6. Well, then you quote it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but There you go. That's it, John 14, 6. Everybody should remember those, those three numbers, okay? Um, God has shown us what is acceptable, and he alone has done the work. Now, by simple faith in what Jesus did, we stand justified, holy, and righteous before God. That's it. Nothing else, okay? So please, if somebody sends you a CD or a tape and they say, please listen to this. This guy's from Israel and he's got it all figured out and he tells you that you need to be sitting in a, a little uh, tabernacle during the Feast of Sukkot and looking up at the sky, 
tell him I'm not going to do that, okay? It has nothing to do with your salvation at all. Observing the Passover, that's fine. If you want to learn what the Passover cedar was like, it's very neat to see. How many here have seen the Passover cedar in a church? It's interesting, isn't it? Wonderful to see. You're not required to do it. It's just showing what Christ went through and what the people of Israel went through for all those years, but it is done. Okay, you're not required to do that. Um, first, we're two, in a whole two, new chapter. Two uh, words in this last verse there. Because, because. Because, because. Because we're sinners, because he's justified. That's right. Because, be I like that. I've never heard that one before. Because, because. Okay, there we go. It's there, it's not. Yeah, it is. Sure enough, because of our offenses and because of our justification. Good deal. Okay, um, chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, there you go. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. And how is it? It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not through Muhammad. It's not through Buddha. It's not through yoga or or meditation or the bhagavad gita or the writings of Lao Tse. it's not some mountain peak over in hopi territory none of those things are going to get you one inch closer to god they're only going to separate you further okay paul begins chapter five with therefore what do you do when you've seen the word therefore that's link what was before. That's right. You go back and see what it is there for. So okay. four and five are linked together. They're linked one together. Train of thought of Paul. It's all one train of thought. He's saying therefore, and when you see therefore, go back and see what it's there for. And so we're going to go and we're going to review everything that he's been talking about, which is from chapter one. We're just going to start again with the book of Romans. Okay, that's not true. <laughs> Paul begins well, you, chapter. You could do that, or you could just read the last sentence in the previous. Well, we could, but that, that's, that's not actually what he's referring to. Let me tell you why. I'll, I'll tell you right here. Paul begins chapter 5 with, therefore, what he has explained throughout chapter 4, and I'm going to show you why that is, is summed up in this verse. Not just the previous verse, the entire chapter. This includes the following three concepts which are contrary to justification by faith alone, because that's what he's saying right here. What shall we say? Oh, I'm sorry, verse 5. Therefore, we have been justified by faith. Okay, and he's going to show why the entire thing that he just said in chapter 4 pertains to the therefore. He says, uh, he explains they have no bearing on our declaration of righteousness. No works. Verses 4, 1 through 4, 8 explained works were wages are due. Okay, works are where wages are due. That's what he explained there. And then verses 4, 9 through 12, circumcision in the flesh, which is a part of works. Circumcision in the flesh is something that Israel did in order to be a part of the covenant people, but it has no bearing on our justification. And then verses 413 through 425, obedience to the law apart from faith. So all three of those points he had to give us in order to get us to verse 5-1. Therefore, okay, I'm not going to go through them again. We've already gone through them. Go back and watch the, uh, the videos or whatever. But everything in chapter 4 it depends on or is is uh, based uh, the therefore in verse five one is based on the whole chapter of chapter four. Okay, based on these three topics, I'll read them again: works where wages are due, circumcision in the flesh, obedience to the law apart from faith. Based on these three topics, Paul proclaimed at the end of the chapter, as he noted, "It shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord up from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses." and was raised because of our justification. It was kind of a summary of what he had been saying. Now, as a result of this, he gives his therefore. Having been justified by faith, what has been explained all the way through chapter four, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
he is writing to saved believers in this particular part of the, he's actually writing to everybody, but the thought process is to save believers, those who have been justified. And he's read it again. Therefore, having been justified, only a saved believer is justified. And so that's who he's talking to specifically, even though all people are included. If you're not justified, you need to pay attention. In other words, if you are, then learn why you're justified. Okay. He says, um, uh, where was I? Um, we, he's writing to say believers because of this translators and commentators find themselves in a very difficult situation. This is important to understand because commentators over the years have really struggled with this particular set of words that he's going to use. Um, the word translated as we have is the Greek echomen. Let me read it to you again. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how they translate it. Okay. It's echomen, and it is explained this way in Vincent's Word Studies. The true reading is echomen, let us have. It doesn't really say we have, it says let us have, okay? People will say we have because that's the only thing that seems to make sense, but the literal reading of it is let us have. But it's difficult, this is, this is Vincent's writing this, but it is difficult, if not impossible, to explain it. Godet says, no exeget, meaning a person who studies the Bible and draws out intent, no exeget has been able to satisfactorily account for this imperative suddenly occurring in the midst of a, a didactic development. Some explain as concessive subjunctive, we may have, but the use of this in independent sentences is doubtful. In other words, he's saying it does say, let us have. All of these other explanations and translations don't fit. And he says, people struggle over, why would he suddenly say, let us have? Here's my thoughts on it. Actually, it's not that difficult. It, uh, <clears throat> the difficulty is not as great as claimed here, okay? The very premise of what Paul is writing is that our justification before God is one of Will, faith. Choice. There you go. That, that's right, faith. And I was, I was going to wait on that, but that's right. Paul is, of course, writing to believers, but he is also writing to skeptics and unbelievers. As I said, he's writing specifically, we have been justified or let us be, right? Okay. His epistles were used as doctrine for anyone to hear. doesn't matter if you're a believer or unbeliever or whatever. His writings are doctrine for anybody. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther, how did he come to Jesus Christ? By reading the book of Romans. He was an unbeliever, even though he was an ordained priest within the Catholic Church, he was an unbeliever. And he came through reading the epistle of Romans. So it's for believers and it's unbelievers. All right. Further, the very premise of his words, instruction on what will and won't lead to justification, chapter four, implies that there are those addressees who are confused enough to need the instruction in the first place. Right. I, I don't know if I'm saved or maybe I'm not saved or maybe I am saved and I'm pretty sure of it, but I want to know. So there's a confusion or he wouldn't have had to have write, written the way that he did. Some of them, some of them are, are relying on works. Some of them are relying on circumcision. These are all things that he had been writing about, right? And some of them are relying on obedience to the law apart from faith, the Judaizers and the Hebrew Roots Movement and all of these people, okay? He's writing to anybody. Paul has been writing to correct them. And therefore, let us have peace with God is instructing them that this coral, cor corrective action, excuse me, <clears throat> this corrective action is required. Faith is a, what? Say it again. It is a volitional act of the free will. 
That is exactly the answer to this. Faith is a volitional act of the free will. When one comes to the table with the presupposition that man does not have free will to choose Jesus, then of course the words let us, echomen in Greek, would be a confusing thought in the midst of all of this instruction. It, why would he say that? But when we realize that God has granted us this right, meaning free will, it follows naturally that we must exercise the very act that has been explained to us. Let us. Okay, the word echumen implies let us. And that's why we have free will. He's given all of the three possibilities for whatever I said, um, for one uh, uh, through eight, and then four, nine through 12, and then four, 13 through 25. That's why he did this, was to give us this basis of what he is telling us. Now let us have anybody who's reading this, if you're a believer, if you're an unbeliever, if you're confused, whatever, okay? When one comes to the table with the presupposition that man doesn't have free will to choose Jesus, then let us would be confusing. But when we realize that God has granted, granted us this right, it follows naturally that we must exercise the very act that has been explained to us. Did you have something? Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. I mean, oh, Charlie, when it, when it says being justified by faith, even in the translation from the Greek, that's an action from the past. Right. Which means that we were justified without any help from us. No help. Because we were declared justified before we ever came into the timeline. Well, in a sense, yes, pot potentially, excuse me. All people on earth are potentially saved by Jesus Christ, even before we were born. All people are potentially saved, but not people, all people are actually saved. But the key is we never initiated the act. That's right. That's exactly right. There is no, if we, all people are potentially saved, even before they're born, that means that there could have been no participation that by us. That's that exactly right. Nothing of us. Nothing of us. Nothing of us. Absolutely. We never even initiated. That's right. Nothing was initiated by us. We are all potentially saved by Jesus Christ, 100%. And it cannot mean that we have done anything to merit it, but we must receive it. And that's where actuality comes in. You've got potential and you've got actual, but that, you're absolutely right about that. It was done. It was done at the cross and it is done for all people through all time. Not the elect who God knew that would, you know, uh, how does uh, Calvinism say it, that you've got certain people that are chosen by God and all the rest are just simply passed over. That is absolute nonsense. We are all potentially saved. All. We are only actually saved when we call on Jesus. And that's why he says, let us. Okay. Therefore, I'm going to break this down for you. Therefore, as a result of what has been said, right? Therefore, that's what he's saying. As a result of what has been said. He goes on, having been justified by faith. That means you came to Christ by faith and were justified by that same faith. We were potentially justified. We are now actually justified by faith. We must exercise faith, okay? Then he says, let us have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Break that down into two things. One, to the saved, okay? But he's speaking to the saved but confused souls. You're confused. You're not sure what he's speaking about. To the saved but confused souls. Continue in that faith and don't fall back on works. Telling others that they need to be circumcised or telling others that obedience to the law is necessary. Instruct them as you have been instructed. That's what he's saying. You're confused. Don't be confused. You are justified. Don't worry about works of the law. As he noted, it was already done. There's nothing that we can do to initiate it. It's already done. All we have to do is receive it. Two, to the unsaved people, to those who have, are reading Paul's letters, like, um, what's his name, Martin Luther, he picks up Romans and he says, hmm, 
This is what he would say. You now know what will bring reconciliation with God. So have faith in this and don't attempt to be justified by works in order to obtain this state. Think of Martin Luther. He picked this up, having done works his whole life. Or he went to school, he was a doctor of theology, he had gone to Rome and climbed up the stairs on his knees and he had prayed the rosary 10 billion times, he confessed his sins 40 times a night to the guy down, the other monk down the way. He was a neurotic basket case. He had done every work possible in order to be saved and he got no closer to God and he knew it. And then he picks up the book of Romans and he does exactly what I just said here. You now know what will bring reconciliation with God. It says it right here, right? Okay, so have faith in this and don't attempt to be justified by works in order to obtain this state. He was justified and he was saved. Yes. I think another good thing it says is that to have faith, but to have peace with God, not the peace of God. The peace of God is different. That comes later. That as comes. As an unbeliever, you're in an act of hostility. And, That's right. Uh, with God, and this justification allows is you. Is what to brings have that peace. Peace with God. So that you can have you the peace of your God. Your personal account. That's right. That's Not exactly this right. General blanket of, of you know. That's what people are always talking about. That's well, people are talking about meditation and how I can have oh, I have peace with God, and you you know, especially it happens at funerals of people that are unsaved. I think he's in a better place now, right? Got news for you: if he didn't know Jesus, he ain't in a better place now, right? He is absolutely right in what he said. Yes. Reverting back a couple of minutes ago, who is the Savior of all men? What you said. But especially of those who believe. Right. That's Timothy 4, 9. That's, and that's exactly right. He's a savior of all men, potentially. Yes. But that's especially of those, those who, believe, who believe, actually. Yes. Those who believe receive that salvation. That's yes. It, you know, um, people who are Christian, and you know, somebody who dies. Right. Who is not. Right. You know, and they, I guess they just can't. Say it, you know, I, doing a funeral for a person that didn't know the Lord is one of the worst possible things you can ever be asked to do. Trust me on this. It is terrible. And when you go to a funeral, I will never say to somebody, they're in a better place now. They're not going to get those words of comfort out of me. I might give them, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm, I, I will walk, walk around that subject all day long, but I am never going to give them a hope that they that they do not possess. I'll pray for your peace. I'll, yeah, I'll pray for your peace, whatever. You think of things to say, but you're absolutely right. It is the hardest thing in the world to talk to somebody that didn't know Jesus. And the worst thing, the worst possible thing I can think of, I mean, it's our job to tell people about Jesus, but telling people about Jesus when, when their brother is in the casket and you say, well, let me tell you about Jesus, that's the last thing in the world. Because now they are saying, you're telling me my brother's in hell? Right? Don't do that. Wait until they get over their grief. Wait until they've had time to process it. Talk to them later because all you're going to do is make another enemy. You're not going to, you're not going to reassure anybody at the, the burial of an unbeliever. It's not the right time. There's a time for everything, as uh, uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. And sometimes it is not the right time to speak about Jesus. You can be a testimony for Jesus at any time. But to just go out and say, well, you know what? I'm sorry your brother's in hell, but let me tell you about Jesus. <laughs> Trust me on this. It's not the right thing to do. Um, this is fully, oh, let me go back and to the unsaved. 
You will need to know it uh, to bring about reconciliation with God. So have faith in this and don't attempt to be justified by works in order to obtain the state. This is fully substantiated by the thoughts laid out in the book of Acts and the book of Galatians. I'm going to take you to Acts 15 first, and I'm going to read you something out of Acts 15. It says in verse 5, um, where is that? Um, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who uh, believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Exactly what Paul has been arguing against, right? This is what people are going to do. They're going to do it to you if you go to, you know, I'm going to go to a Messianic synagogue and watch the Passover Seder next year. And guess what? Somebody's inevitably going to come up to you and start a conversation like this, and they're going to have your theology messed up in your head unless you're ready for it in advance. And then we also see this in the book of Galatians. This is a good one. Chapter 2. This is, I think I was talking about this earlier today, or it may have been with somebody on the phone, but I think it was here in the class. Galatians chapter 2, he says, um, uh, let's see here, verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. This is the great first pope, right, according to the Catholic Church. No, he wasn't. But anyway, uh, it, it, Peter was completely messed up in his theology and even more messed up in his scared, timid attitude towards the Judaizers, right? It took him years to get over this. For before certain men came from James, meaning the leader of the church down in Jerusalem, who Peter obviously was not the first pope, right? He would eat with the Gentiles. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. That is completely contrary to the law of Moses. They, they, that was something that he would have been barbecued for. And as a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 11, they accused him of it. And then he explained what had happened, and they were like, oh, so salvation has gone to the Gentiles. But Peter is eating with the Gentiles. If he's eating with the Gentiles, he was eating whatever those Gentiles prepared. And let me tell you what, they didn't go to the Torah and start pulling out the law of Moses and looking at each little thing and saying, well, Peter can't eat this and Peter can't eat that. They whipped up whatever was in the refrigerator at the time. They cooked it on the stove and they served it to him, okay? That, that is what happened. He was eating with the Gentiles. We, we can infer nothing else from it except that, okay? Anybody that says, well, he was eating as a, a Jew with the Gentile. No, he was eating with the Gentiles. They were serving him dinner, okay? But when they came, meaning the Jews... He withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Oh, I'm going to lose my status as the first pope. Okay. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with them. So that even Barnabas, son of encouragement, right? He was carried away with the, their hypocrisy. They're being hypocrites, hypocrites, two-faced. I'm putting on this face when the Gentiles are around, but when the Jews come, I'm putting on this face. You're double-faced. You have no grounding in sound theology. Yes. Question. Okay. When certain men came from James. Right. The Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15, right. James right. is in charge of it. Okay. So was it a misinterpretation that Peter thought that they no. were of the Judaizers, or was he? He was just, they're Jews. They're living in Israel. They're not eating pork. They're not, uh, you know, eating whatever uh, uh, nummy, nummy things, uh, lobster, right? Mm -hmm. And he's like, I don't want to offend anybody. Who cares about offense? That's what we're doing that on Facebook all day, every day. I don't want to offend somebody. I want to be tolerant. That's the stupidest thing in the world. You have freedom in Christ. Why would you worry about their their inability to perceive what so, Christ has so freed James you from? James wasn't completely 
No, he, it, not at all. He was not in any way telling them that they have to do these things. But he knows that they're coming from Jerusalem. They're certainly down in Israel. They're not eating pork because they're... What does Paul say? I have become all things to all men. They are down in Israel, these Jews, right? Do you think that they're eating pork chops now in Israel because they have freedom in Christ? Absolutely not, because they are trying to evangelize Jews. Mm -hmm. If they're out there burping up pork chops in their face, then these Jews are going to be like, we're out of here, right? Paul became all things to all people, and certainly all of the other people did as well. They lived within a society. If I go to Africa and they eat um, monkey brains, if that's what's on the tap for dinner, I'm either going to eat that or I'm not going to eat it at all, right? You do what the, the culture does. When I went to weddings in Malaysia, they did not serve utensils. They're Malay, so they don't have uh, Chinese chopsticks, and they don't have American forks. And so how do you eat your big rice and chicken? Yeah, that's right. You use your hand. And they don't give you any knife to cut the chicken, so you have to pull it apart with your fingers. And you can't use your left hand because they're Malay, which means they're Muslim. And if you use your left hand, they will all run as fast as they can from you and never talk to you again because this is for something else. So you're sitting there trying to cut a piece of chicken with one. That's what you do. You live in the culture you're in. So these people are coming from that culture. They go up to Peter, and Peter says, oh, I don't want to offend anybody and all of this crazy stuff. Forget offense. Forget tolerance. We have freedom. We can exercise it. All right? So going on, he says, um, and the rest of the Jews played the hypocrite. Even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, because he's there up in, in uh, where, is, where is it, Antioch? Where Antioch. Was, yeah, yeah, thank you, he's in Antioch. But you, being a Jew, where was I? Okay, live in the manner of Gentiles. He's living as a Gentile. It, it, the implication is obvious. It is obvious. Anybody that can't read this and say, Peter was eating what Gentiles were eating is, is self-deceived. They are self-deluded. I've had people from Messianic congregations say that that doesn't say that. I've had him say all the way through the book of Galatians, ignoring every single thing that it says. It is black, it is white, and it is simple and easy to understand. If you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh will be saved. They weren't saved under the old covenant through the law. They're not saved now through the law. No, no flesh. Nobody will ever be saved by the law of Moses. Ever, 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 ever. Okay? Jesus was not saved by the law of Moses. He embodied the law of Moses. He was already sinless. He didn't need to do it. He did it for us. And by fulfilling the law for us, we are saved by his fulfillment of the law. Okay? We are saved by Jesus Christ. Okay. So, it's as plain and simple as it could be. I don't know how people mess that up, but they do do it. Okay. So, we've got Galatians 2, 11 through 16, and we've got 20 more minutes. Good. Paul's use of let us, here in the book of Romans, echomen, the word echomen, in Romans 5.1 is directed toward exactly such people. Acts 15.5, Galatians 2.11 through 16. That's the people that he's speaking to, okay? They were already saved believers, but they weren't standing on the truth of what saved them in the first place. Faith in what Jesus did for them apart from deeds of the law. There's nothing difficult about the word echomen in there. It is plain, it is clear, it is obvious what's being said. Little life application. The Bible is a large book with many difficult issues, 
but the more we read it and the more we remember what we've read, like Burke over here, yes. the Thank sure, the what? Yeah, Burke for it sure. Just, what was that verse, Burke? Oh, thank you. <laughs> the surer our knowledge of what it proclaims becomes. It is a book without contradiction or confusion. It is we who insert the contradiction, or it is we who insert the confusion by mixing dispensations, by taking things out of context, by a million different mistakes of biblical interpretation or hermeneutics. We are the ones that make those mistakes. Okay, so. So if we are confused, the problem lies in our understanding of the word, not in the word itself, okay? Hebrew roots movement fails because they reject portions of the New Testament. They reject certain writers of the New Testament. They close their eyes when they get to words like annulled and set aside and obsolete, nailed to the cross. And because of that, they are at fault. It is not a fault in the word of God. It is a fault in our interpretation of what the word of God is saying. Does anybody know, just because I, I, I mentioned exegesis earlier, and I said it, what does exegesis mean? It's to draw out meanings. You, ex means out, ek, ek, okay, like, um, like exodus. Exit, yeah, exodus, or ek, okay, it's, it's a word that means to out, so to ex, exegesis would be to draw out. There's the opposite, which is called eisegesis. Eisegesis means taking what you believe and inserting into the Bible. 99% of all Bible teachers will eisegete something at some point, and some people, that's all they do. They pick up the Bible, they say, I know that I have to observe the law of Moses because my first rabbi told me this 52 years ago, and every time they pick up the word of God, they insert that theology into what they're reading, and they will never, never be clear of it unless they're willing to say, I'm going to draw out what the text says rather than insert. And we all do it to some extent. I don't, as a matter of fact, I say 99%, but I don't know anybody that doesn't take some type of presupposition and say, this is what I believe, and therefore this is what must be said. If you tell me that dispensationalism isn't true, and they give me a verse, I'm going to, from because I'm a dispensationalist, I am going to say, this must be taken from a dispensationalist perspective, right? I'm not a covenantalist. I don't believe in covenantalism. I think it's incorrect. And because of that, when I read that verse, I am going to eisegete my presupposition into there. Hopefully, I am doing it correctly, that dispensationalism is true, because James uh, 3.1 says that uh, not many of you should be purposed to be teachers, knowing that you will receive the stricter judgment. There is a weight that you bear because of teaching incorrectly. And I would hope that my eisegesis isn't actually eisegesis, it's just that I'm correct in what I'm thinking, and therefore I'm reading out of it correctly. Right? Everybody understand that? Gotcha. Exegesis, eisegesis. Okay, so, 5-2. Um, Through whom we have gained access by faith into his into this grace in which we now stand. Oh boy, I see I was in Galatians 2. And still we still. rejoice in the hope, the glory of God. Yes, through whom also we have access by faith. Okay, through whom Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, we also have access by faith. He says it again. He said it like 18,000 times in the past, you know, 15 verses. Faith into this grace. It's something that's given. It's a gift. It's not something you can earn. This grace which we stand. Not which we are hopefully standing. Not which this, this grace which may we may sit down on at some point we stand. He is able to make us stand. It says that elsewhere. Where does it say it, Burke? We will stand. Come on. 
Oh, well, anyway, it does. It says it, and I'll get it for you. Anyway. No pressure, Burke. Well, I just figured he might know the verse that I'm thinking of. And uh, so anyway, but he looked at me with that. That's okay. Don't worry. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Okay, here we go. The entire thought of verses 1 and 2 needs to be read slowly while thinking about what is occurring. So I'm going to read you 1 and 2 again. What? Ephesians 6. Thank you. That's a that's exactly what I want. And I, you know what? I should have just thought that through, but I wanted to rely on you because it's easier to use your brain pan instead of mine. Ephesians 6, it says um, uh, he goes through sit, stand, and whatever, the power of taking up the shield, uh, having your feet shod, supplication. Where is it? Um, oh, I, I must. Oh, yeah, here it is. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the, ev- the evil day and having done all to stand. Okay, good job. All right, so um, I'm going to read you one and two again. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Okay, we were enemies of God and outside of his favor when we, when he, as uh, Robert said earlier, did the unimaginable. He did it. He did it when we we weren't even born. It happened 2,000 years ago, and yet he did it. It's unimaginable. He sent us Jesus. Now we are justified by mere faith in him and his finished work. I just don't understand how people can't pick this book up and see that. How can people not see when he says it in 15 different ways? You're justified by faith. You're justified by faith. You're justified by faith. And he says, no works, no works, no works. And he says it again and again and again. And people still cannot accept God's grace. The guy that uh, does the website for me, he did this marvelous article about um, three or four years ago. And mom sent it to me today. She says, read this marvelous article from the American Thinker. And I went back and I said, this is the guy that did the website. This is his article. And I sent it on to him and I said, it's, it's three years old, but it is relevant as it is today. Why are churches in such dysfunction? It all comes back to them not teaching the doctrine of grace. The doctrine of grace is the only doctrine. It is the only thing that can save anybody. And when you get away from that, when you get into any of these side tangents, you err. It is by grace. It is by grace and that through faith. And when you get away from that, all all of Christianity is suffering because we get away from that one doctrine. Okay? Sure. Yes. The church elders was interviewing a guy to see if he be a church member. Right. And they said, tell us about it. He said, I did my part. Oh, yeah, I ran as far as I could from the Lord, and he chased me down. He chased me down. That's right. <laughs> now, I did my part. Yeah. I did my running. Yeah. It just wasn't fast enough. Very good. He did his part. Okay. So we, uh, uh, he sent us Jesus. Now we are justified by mere faith in him and his finished work. Because of this, we are implored to have peace with God through him. He is our peace. And so through him, we enter into a new state and a new relationship with the Creator. But there's more. Through Jesus, we have access by this same justifying faith, as Paul says, into this grace in which we stand. The Greek word translated as access is used only three times in the New Testament, and all three occurrences indicate a face-to-face interactive access. All three of them. J.B. Lightfoot describes it as having audience direct access with God. This is an immediate and a continuing blessing of having called on Jesus by faith. Not only is it immediate and continuing, but it is something, as Paul says, in which we stand. 
The verb stand is perfect, indicative, active. The action is accomplished, it is a fact, and it is ongoing. In other words, you cannot lose your salvation. I don't, once again, I don't know how people can say to somebody, well, I don't believe in once saved, always saved. Well, then you don't believe the Bible. You don't believe God's word because when Paul uses tenses in the New Testament, he does it for a reason. I mentioned that in the Prophecy Update about um, uh, the Holy Spirit, right? It's passive. He used that tense for a reason. And every time he says, be filled with the Spirit, it's in the passive. Why? Because we can't actively be filled with the Spirit. It's passively done as we yield ourselves to God. Same thing here. Perfect, indicative, active. The action is accomplished. It is a fact, and it is ongoing. In Christ, we stand. We do not fall. What he has done in us is complete, and it will not pass away. What occurs here is explained in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Let's see if we got that. Made him to sin for us. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay? For he made him, meaning Jesus, God made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are the righteousness of God in him. If we can lose our salvation, that's not a very good righteousness of God in him, is it? Right? Think it through. Think each issue through, and you will always come to a clear resolution that you are saved and you are always saved. If you depart from God, he has not departed from you. I assure you of that. Uh, if you are saved, okay? Uh, the position we find ourselves in before God is in Christ's standing. It's not in our own. Once again, imputation. God sees us as he sees his own son. It doesn't mean that we are perfect. We are imputed his righteousness. We have what we need because of Christ, not because we are perfect now. We were imputed it, not imparted it, all right? Um, we could not, we could as much lose this standing as Christ himself could. Could Christ ever become unsaved? Absolutely not. If Christ can't, then we can't because we are in Christ, all right? God has favored us, not because of our own merits, but because of the work of Jesus. But yet there's more. Through this same faith, we also rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, as Paul says. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is our future benefit, and which we wait on as we stand on the surety of what has occurred. In God's mind, the action is already complete. The tense of the verb tells us that. Paul says in Romans 8.30 that those whom he justified, he also glorified. Done deal in his mind. We are merely waiting for this final state, and as we do, we can rejoice in the hope that we possess. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Life application and um we have time for one more. Um, if you're feeling beaten up because you failed Jesus, anybody ever done that? I do it every day. There's not a day that I don't feel bad about it, or I, what a crummy husband I am today, or boy, I wish I didn't yell at my poor little puppy, or whatever, okay? It, be reassured in this verse. This verse tells us that we may have failed him, but he will not accept our failure. If you have faith in him, you are saved, you will remain saved, and you will be glorified for all eternity. What you see is a difficult walk of repeated failure and trial, which I see when I look in the mirror every day, God sees as already accomplished. He has done the work. Have faith in that and let your hope be filled with rejoicing. Okay? Good stuff. Three. Five, what? 5-3. Five, three. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Woohoo! Can't wait to suffer. Oh, boy. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Okay. 
very similar, suffering and tribulation. Mm -hmm. This is a similar thought to what James says in his letter. Let me read you that right there, unless uh, Jim, uh, uh, I'm sorry, no, Burke uh, pre preempts me. Um, let's see here. We've got James chapter uh, 1, verses 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Oh boy, I'm going to be happy when I fall into my trial. <laughs> Lord, give me that grace, because I sure need it. Okay, um, not only do we rejoice in the hope of glory of God, which is verse 2, but we further glory in tribulations. The word used here is ellipsis. It's kind of a hard word to say. Anyway, it carries the idea of pressure, such as being hemmed into a small, tight spot. Have you ever seen an animal that's really cramped in and how they freak out, or even a little kid? It doesn't matter. If you're cramped, it's, it's a terrible feeling. That's what the ellipsis is. When we face trials, which would otherwise cause us to lose control, we can instead glory in them. Okay, it doesn't mean we do, but we can. As the world around us falls apart due to external crises which arise, we understand that God is in control. Now, that's one thing I can deal with. When the world falls apart and I see I get really angry, you know, especially at the people that are causing the, the miscreants that are doing it, but I can understand it. My own personal troubles I find harder to reconcile with than the bigger picture of things. When I see the world falling apart, I just think, Lord, you said it was going to happen, and we, we're, we're going to, it's only going to get worse. But um, God is in control. These types of tribulation will only serve us in a positive way. They do produce perseverance. I was talking to somebody about this, and I don't think I gave him the example. We were talking about um, the difficulties of persevering. And um, uh, I was watching something, I think it was on TV. Might have been somebody that told me. But anyway, I, I've remembered the lesson, if not where it came from, is that somebody was in, I think it was in Hungary, and they said to a, this poor person that was out there and it's in this miserable conditions, and they said, ah, keeping faith in Jesus must be so difficult for you. And she said, oh, it's just the opposite. We feel bad for you guys in America. She says, that's where your real faith is really tested because you've got everything you need. Well, who needs Jesus when you got everything you need? We were talking about that before the class today. Yep. That's where real faith, in my opinion, is tested. When things start getting difficult, wow, you want something to hold on to, right? Anyway, um, the, uh, the uh, tests produce perseverance. If we, could feel, if we feel that the world is out of control, then all sense of hope is lost. When this happens, we will look to the government ooh, or some other entity to secure us and keep us safe, which is exactly what the left does because they don't believe in God. They're completely godless in their thinking and their attitudes. And so what are they doing? We want government. And that's why the man that is in the White House right now is so vehemently hated is because he's trying to get the government pared down. He's trying to cut these people out and to take control and give it back to the people. And they hate that because the government is their God. The government is their source of comfort and the government is their source of hope. And that's why they hate this guy. He's, we talked about the under Prophecy Update on Sunday. He's got more Christians appointed to cabinet-level cabinet positions than probably anybody since George Washington. They're having prayer meetings. They're, they're reading the Bible in the White House, and the left is going bonkers over it, okay? So the government, um, they uh, look for the government or some other entities to secure them and keep them safe. However, the Christians should understand that the trials and woes of the world around us are a part of God's plan. Whether he causes them directly or merely allows them, all things are within his providence, and therefore we are to look to him, not to the government, as our source of strength and hope. Okay, it's, it is God. That's where we look. The difference is wider than the seas. 
looking to anything less than God for help in tribulation will not produce patience. Because when things start going bad, you say to the government, we need more, we need more, we need more. There's no patience in it. There's never patience in that type of hope. Instead, it will only produce greater fear and a greater loss of freedom, which is exactly what our founding father said. You take away the freedoms and you, when you take out the religion and the moral of the people, you give up your freedoms, okay? But when we look to God during these trials, we appreciate that he is in complete control and our resolve will only be strengthened. We know that God has a plan. We know that it's going to work out. It may really stink in the process. It hasn't started really for us yet, but it may. And when it does, he's in control. Or we could just apply it to a single family unit. You know, finances are bad or health is bad, whatever. We know that God is in control. It may stink in the process, but we know that God has it figured out for us. Okay, life, life application right on time. In the recent past, most bombers, more bombers did their evil work, right? Suicide bombers, we need to look to the root cause of this and understand that it did not occur apart from God's sovereign knowledge. The perpetrators are no less guilty, but we need to be strengthened in the perseverance of our faith that God alone can bring peace to this troubled land or to any land or to the world as a whole, only God will. And when he pulls the church out at the rapture, he's gonna take his hands off of the world and he's gonna say, go ahead, have it your way, and it's not gonna be better. They're gonna say, oh man, the Christians are gone. We've got it figured out. The government's gonna take over and it's gonna be paradise, and this world is going to tear itself apart. It is literally going to come. It says in the book of Isaiah that I will make man as rare as pure gold. It's gonna be that bad. And Jesus said that if he didn't cut the day short, no flesh would survive. It is gonna be horrifying. So thank God for Jesus Christ. Seven years. Oh, seven years. And it, you know, it's actually only gonna be really the last three and a half that's where it's really gonna devolve. But it's just gonna, it's gonna be, as we say, it's gonna be hell on earth when it, when it happens. But let me uh, circle this so I don't forget where we are next week, five, three. And Jim, you're not gonna be here Sunday, are you? No. Well, then you get to close this in prayer, don't you? Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for this ability for us to get together and just uh, steep in your word. And Lord, um, sure, I speak for everyone who's here and that's watching online, but I have such a peace that comes over me after we do this. And uh, I know it's all from you. And um, Lord, just um, give us the strength to uh, tell the good news to others. And, uh, may we uh, be strong in our faith and uh, be able to buffet those that... Uh, tear it apart mm -hmm. and, uh, Lord, we also pray for those that uh, that are our are, are sworn enemies at this point in time may they see you at some point in time oh, and, boy. And, uh, become uh, followers and Lord just know that we pray all this to your sons holy name Jesus amen amen absolutely I think it's going to be it's going to be too late for the rapture but we would pray that they would be willing to die for the sake of Jesus when it happens that is for certain. Okay, let me, oh boy, back pain, wow. All right, let's back this baby. Look at this, Sergio. Oh, no, that was me getting off my chair. I thought that was Sergio doing it. Okay, break. All right, we're backing up. We're, okay, we love you guys. Have a wonderful week. Take good care of yourselves. We'll see you later. Yes. It's either first or second. I think it's Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a used tank. Hey, what are you over there it's doing? It's not a used tank. It's only paid for a $3.15. Comedians are everywhere. Yeah, yeah. 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 $15. Yeah. Thank you. First paid for $3.15.
when he was talking about don't preach to somebody who's at funeral. Funeral. I thought, right, my goal going there needs to be to listen and pray and, and hug people and cry you bet. those who cry. But the balancing truth of that is the scripture says always be ready. Always be ready for a defense. If somebody That's right. asks you why do you have hope? I don't disagree with that. Yeah. I'm saying don't be right, let me right. yeah. You just don't go with your agenda. Exactly. Stupid agenda. Exactly. Always be ready, but that doesn't mean that right, right, it's always right. the right time. That's because yeah. there have been people saved because of Oh, you betcha. You betcha. It's just that if you say, Well that person's in hell right now, all you're gonna do is